The GIST is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Scientific Secrets for a Powerful Memory. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash GIST. And by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Try it free for 30 days by visiting gotomeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, August 10th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So that debate on Thursday drew more ratings on cable than anything other than college football. How, how is that? Well, let's see. A little less than a dozen adrenalized men wearing their war paint before fans of whooping partisans attempting end-arounds. They favor bombs, but they know the importance of a good ground game. They're all funded by wealthy donors, and it was airing on a network that prominently features cheerleaders. I can't see how you can compare that to college football. But just like after a college football game, we focus on all the big plays, there were some smaller moments that will be forgotten, and I want to focus on the fact-checking. Not to check the facts, but to check the checkers. The gist checks the checkers. Let's just take one aspect of fact-checking, the fact-checking sites that kind of annoys me. And it's when they check statements of absolutes, as when speaking of allowing abortion in cases of rape and incest, when Marco Rubio said, I have never said that, and I have never advocated that. So PolitiFact checked it and ruled mostly true. But how can a statement of, I have never, be mostly true? I mean, if you did it once, if you said it or advocated it once, then it's not true. And if you did it never, then the statement's all true. This is how absolute statements work. So PolitiFact reported that there have been bills with rape and incest exceptions that Rubio supported. Ah, but a Rubio spokesman countered. And a lot of these campaigns don't even get back to fact check, so credit the Rubio campaign. I think they made a good argument when they said Marco has supported pro-life legislation with and without exceptions because they enhance protections for innocent life. And Rubio himself told CNN, I'm in favor of a 20-week abortion ban. Does that mean I'm in favor of abortions at 19 weeks? No. Here's another analogy. I voted for a bill that says the speed limit's 55. Does that mean I'm actually against a speed limit of 50? You cannot surmise that. Indeed, you can't, and I think that the fact-checking sites can't meet an absolute statement with a conditional. The actual article on the fact-check site was really good. A lot of good context about Rubio's record, but the ruling has to be, if he said, I never, has to be true, or false, and it can't be mostly true, it should be true, true. There are other statements of never, Ted Cruz saying, I've never supported amnesty, that's also marked mostly true. No, he really never has supported amnesty. You know what? It was nice for a second there to traffic in a little bit of nuance for a moment, because in the spiel, I will traffic in Trump. I will speak to you, as I am now, from Chicago, the heartland, the land of Lincoln, of prairie practicality, of reasonableness, And of the Trump International Hotel and Tower featuring a penthouse that sold for $17 million. Ah, Trump, you can't flee him, so I will spiel about his chances today. But first, we have a visit, a summertime visit from Maria Konnikova. And why am I here in Chicago? Well, it's for a birthday. I'm going to tell you more about the birthday tomorrow. But right now, I want to tell you about a song that you may associate with candles, birthdays, happiness, and a nearly 90-year-old copyright kerfuffle. 
Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear litigious rights holder. Happy birthday. And we must end there or else we'd run into copyright law. Okay, not really, not literally. This is a news context. But who knows? Maybe the lawyers for the owners of Happy Birthday would ask me to pay a couple thousand dollars. That's what happened to a documentary filmmaker. Her name is Jen Nelson. She's doing a documentary on Happy Birthday. And they, they hit her with a bill. They hit everyone with a bill. If you ever see anyone singing Happy Birthday in a movie, someone paid Warner Music, I don't know, up to $10,000. In the documentary Hoop Dreams, those filmmakers were forced to pay $5,000. So what's going on? Jennifer Nelson joins me now. Hello. Hello. Happy birthday. When's your birthday? My birthday is May 25th. All right. So we just missed it. My bad. But um, did you have to pay when you sang it? Do I have to pay? Am I skirting the law by singing happy birthday and not paying in my everyday life? <laughs> well, you have to pay if it's if it's a public performance. So mm-hmm. anytime it's on TV, radio, you know, a movie, you have to pay for it. So your documentary is not, it didn't start by saying, let's do a lawsuit against the happy birthday people. It just started as an examination of happy birthday. Exactly. And um, happy birthday is not the name of the song. The original song is good morning to all. Uh-huh. That was the original song from 1893. So it's the same melody that you know from Happy Birthday and different lyrics. Good morning to all. Good morning to all. Good morning to your children. Good morning to all. What case does this uh, rest upon? Well, Warner Chapel bought Birch Tree, a publishing company in the 80s. And in that publishing group was the Happy Birthday to You song. So they claim that they own the copyright to the Happy Birthday song and can charge license fees for any public performance. We're challenging that. We don't think they own the copyright to the Happy Birthday song. What's your case? Well, first of all, it's sort of a ridiculous notion to think that you have to pay for the Happy Birthday song. It's been a song that's been a part of our history and culture forever. I mean, it should be the people's song. Mm-hmm. Nobody even know who, where it came from, who wrote it. Um, so it's sort of ridiculous to begin with. And then what we discovered along the way is that um, Warner Chapel might not actually even own the song. So is it just that it's so old that no one could claim that anyone owns it? Or is it that the Warner Chapel specific claim was, what, misfiled or handled incorrectly? Or they never had the right to say they owned it in the first place? Well, this is, it's super technical mm-hmm. and, and complicated. But we basically discovered a book from 1927 called Everyday Songbook, which has the Happy Birthday song in it. And once they published it, it was free for all to use. It was for the public. It was not, you know, they didn't copyright it at the time. So any claim that Warner Chapel renewed the copyright or owned the copyright um, has been debunked by this early book from 1927. How long can a copyright holder extend copyright? I mean, this is written, isn't it, what, a 14 years at a time? And then I know Congress passed. I don't know if your documentary gets into this, but the, uh, the Mickey Mouse law to allow Walt Disney to perpetuate that copyright. But is there a limit on how long this could go on? Well, I think that's the issue with copyright law. That's sort of the central issue is, I mean, copyright law serves a very important purpose. It should exist. The problem with it is that they keep extending the length of the copyright term. So um, it hinders songs to enter public domain, which hinders, you know, artistic development and freedom and that sort of thing. So Happy Birthday is case in point. It, it's, you know, over 100 years old. It's still owned by Warner Chapel, And hopefully we'll be, get to prove that wrong. How does a song that's pretty humble in its ambitions, how does that take off? How does it become the national song? I mean, they didn't have a big radio show or a platform that everyone was paying attention to them. 
Right. That's a good question. I mean, I think prior to the happy birthday song, you know, I, I'm not sure how people celebrated birthdays. But once you had a song to bring people together and have this tradition or a cake and celebration, you know, it caught on first in Kentucky and then uh, missionaries took it, the song around the world. Oh, wow. And it literally spread all over the world and, and has become, you know, a part of culture and tradition in, you know, 18 different languages. Now, as a documentary filmmaker, beyond happy birthday, you have to be aware of someone in your movie, you know, wearing a logo. And there is uh, someone in your movie walking past, you know, you're doing a street scene and maybe they walk past something that a piece of art where someone can assert a copyright. And some documentary filmmakers look at this as fair use, but some, even if they'd like to, you know, they're backed by funders who won't take that chance. And so you see a lot of pixelation. I've talked to professors who say that documentarians are going way overboard. It's not exactly their fault. It's again, people give put up insurance and they don't want to be sued. But is this something that you face that, you know, where do you stand on, say, pixelating a Nike logo in one of your documentaries? Well, that's a great question. And again, fair use is fuzzy. There's a, is a gray area in terms of fair use and how it's used. Most lawyers will be a little conservative on that approach and ask you to, you know, take the high road and pay for the song or pixelate, do whatever you need to do to avoid litigation. That's usually the easier way to go, and that's generally what people do. If you chose not to use Happy Birthday in your song or movie or radio, Warner Chapel to date has never sued anybody for using it. Oh, okay. So, so people pay based on the fact that if they don't, they're going to get dinged, but they've never they've never gone after anyone. I have documentary friends that have received notice from Warner Chapel saying you you have to pay for that song. I have a friend that had a film in Sundance. He wasn't aware that he had to pay for the song. Warner Chapel approached him and said, hey, you need to pay $3,000 for that song. So he just did. He, he didn't, you know, he was afraid of getting sued. So he just went ahead and paid the $3,000. But had he decided not to pay, they wouldn't have actually sued him mm. because to date they've never have sued anybody. Now, my last suggestion for you is, I don't know, I, I hope this project goes well. The next project, might I suggest you do a documentary on the life of the Mayfly, because they only live 24 hours and therefore celebrate no birthdays, and there's no singing involved. That, <laughs> what if they a have a one. birthday every hour, though? But happy birth hour to you is not covered by copyright law, and that's the difference. <laughs> Jennifer Nelson is working on a documentary about Happy Birthday, also trying to get that song into the public domain, striking a blow for everyone who's ever trained a camera on someone who decided to sing upon someone's birthday. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much. The Great Courses. It's all in the name. They're great. Of course. I like learning. I like the pleasure of learning. I bet you do, too. I bet that's part of the reason you listen to the gist. Well, I'm sure some of it is, hey, you might sing. This might be a day he sings. But learning things, that also has its appeal. The Great Courses is fantastic audio and video lectures, history, science, art. They even have great business and presentation collection that I recommend. The courses include Scientific Secrets for a Powerful Memory. Ooh, that's a good one. How Conversation Works, Art of Public Speaking, and Influence, colon, Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill. That's right, become a superhero by talking. These are great tools and insights for anyone looking to improve their recall at work or sharpen their presentation skills or being better at negotiating. The Great Courses are celebrating their 25th anniversary, meaning the courses are available 
in DVD, CD, streaming, digital downloads, or with the Great Courses apps. So I'm offering this to you for a limited time. You order any four business and presentation courses for just $9.95 each. A special price of $9.95. Right now, what's your passport number? Don't know? Order a great course. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash gist. That's thegreatcourses.com slash gist. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, so saith the good book. Now we know that the really good books are books named Mastermind and The Confidence Game because they are written by Maria Konnikova, who joins us to play the scientific inquiry game of the season. Is that bullshit? And our season to every season is summer. We're doing a big summer slam, a summer catch-all, bullshit all questions about summer, more questions than we usually do. We're going to try to tackle three or four. Is that good by you, Maria? Sounds great, Mike. Okay. Let's start off with the thing that has given the most boost to the verb slathering that I can ever imagine, SPF or sunblock. When I was young, they called it suntan lotion. Now they don't. Okay. So there are a number of questions to ask about sunblock. Does it really work like they say it works? Sure, it does. So it's actually sun protection factor is what SPF stands for, and that helps explain the number a little bit, which we can talk about separately. Let's Um, do that right now. What is the number? So 30 means you can spend 30 minutes in the sun with it? No, that's a common misperception. Ah, Great. So what the number actually means, it's the ratio of the amount of energy you would need to burn versus the amount of energy you would need to burn with the sunscreen on. Wow, I'm glad. I think the old wives' tale is a little easier to get your head around. Explain that. So so basically, an SPF 15 means you need 15 times more UV energy in order to burn. And so, yes, time is a, is a proxy because as you stay outside longer, you're more yeah. exposed and there's more energy. But it's not actually linear. So SPF 30, for instance, isn't twice as good or twice as protective as SPF 15 because they block different amounts of, of radiation. Basically, up to SPF 50, there's yeah. pretty good evidence that more is better. After SPF 50, there's really little evidence. They're still allowed to say it. This is a huge controversy. Should you be allowed to say SPF 100 plus? Uh-huh. And the people who argue that you shouldn't, even though technically it's an accurate description, say that it gives people a sense of overconfidence. You think that if you've put on SPF 100 plus, you don't need to reapply it as often, or you, but that's not true. No. Because it's just... Yeah, you could sweat it out and exactly. wash so, it Exactly. So you and, shouldn't feel yeah. super good about yourself just because you're wearing SPF 100. I mean, what's SPF 150-something? Isn't that like just like SPF suit of armor, a, a, SPF flannel pajamas? Yeah. At that point, it basically is. The funny thing is, though, you never block out 100%. There's no single SPF, at least the formulations that we currently have, that blocks out 100% of UVA and UVB radiation. A couple other questions about uh, sunblock and SPF. I know, I think I know, tell me if I'm wrong, that exposure to the sun and repeated tanning, it's bad for your skin. It can give you skin cancer. But isn't it less demonstrable that sunburns are especially bad or, or have they proven that sunburns are even worse, far worse, as bad as we think in terms of uh, long-term effects in skin cancer? 
The answer is it depends.、Uh-huh. It depends on the person. There's a lot of individual variation in terms of skin tone, in terms of how much melatonin, which is kind of your natural sun protection factor. So if you notice, you know, some people tan much more easily than others. Their skin produces melatonin more quickly, which is a way of trying to basically do the same thing as SPF does, reflect the We swarthy Mediterranean <laughs> types. Understand? Yes, exactly. And so for some people, a severe burn can be really bad. The evidence is really mixed. There are some studies that show that a severe burn can be really, really bad, but it's really hard to show causality because you know you get a severe burn when you're, you know, twenty years old, and then you develop skin cancer when you're thirty. There's really no way to do. That type、yeah. of study longitudinally、yeah. and get good data, and so the way they, they like give pigs right. So、burns? the way that they do it is they try to test it in mice and in pigs, which is also, by the way, how a lot of your sunscreens get tested.、Um, when they get tested in vivo, they get slathered onto little mice hey, or little rats. When it comes to a、rats. pig, better slathered than slaughtered. <laughs> Absolutely, but burns are bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, bottom line, that redness is inflammation, so your capillaries are dilating. Different types of rays can go either more or less deeply. So UVA, for instance, which until recently a lot of sunscreen did not protect against, can penetrate much further than UVB. So whenever you get SPF, it's actually much more important that it's a broad spectrum protection than that it's a SPF 100, because SPF 100, that's just UVB,、ah, isn't good. So look for what on the label? Broad spectrum. Broad spectrum or UVA slash UVB. Cool. All right. So there's a lot of good information there. Let's do a. Is that bullshit? There's no such thing as a healthy tan. Is that bullshit? That's not 100% bullshit. There can be a healthy tan for some people、mm-hmm. these days. Most tans will be unhealthy if you're looking at things like skin damage and aging. Not just cancer, but a whole range of health consequences. So, for instance, any tan is going to potentially damage your skin. Your skin is tanning to try to protect itself, but what that means is that there's a lot of ultraviolet radiation that's coming onto your skin. So, all of these SPF factors. This is also a very important point. Depend on you putting the right amount on, and basically nobody does that. There's a teaspoon rule. Yeah. And the teaspoon rule says you basically use about 12 teaspoons. Of sunscreen for a body, yeah. On、uh-huh. average, obviously, children are different. Would seem but, to d-、uh, you know, <laughs> diverge greatly based on surface area. <laughs> exactly,、yeah. exactly. That's an average.、And、the one thing I could add, because you've been a font, is <laughs> here's what everyone forgets if they're really going out to the beach: tops of the feet. Everyone forgets、yes. the tops of the feet and bottoms of the feet. Bottoms of the a、exactly. lot of skin cancer appear on bottoms of feet, ears, and the part of your hair.、Mm-hmm. Basically, sing that old children's song: head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Yes, get it all. All right, let's move on to another summertime fun fact bullshit edition. Swimming after you eat. Wait a half hour. <laughs> is that bullshit? That is absolutely bullshit. <laughs> I have to say, <laughs> starting in the, about the '60s, people suddenly started saying, "Oh, let's test this." A lot of it is athletic performance.、Mm-hmm. So if you're a swimmer. And you eat, you know, a half hour before, an hour before, two hours before, whatever. Does it make a difference? The answer is no.、Mm-hmm. None of these studies found any significant effects. There have been no cases of drowning or of anyone getting seriously hurt because of a food-induced cramp. Cramps that are actually dangerous tend to be in the feet, in the arms, not in the stomach. 
Yeah. Well, I know that uh, MOFIC, Mothers Against Food Induced Cramps, was a big uh, thing, <laughs> you know, a few years ago, but they're gradually waning. So. so, so moms, after your child eats ice cream, you can go in the water. All right. Ice cream. <laughs> ice cream. I just laid out a segue. What about ice cream headaches? Ice cream headaches, if you eat ice cream too fast, you will get a headache. Is that bullshit? Yes. You, 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 a lot of people get headaches yeah. from eating ice cream too fast, but you don't have to. Is it the too fast part? No, it's a few things. There are individual differences. Yeah. There's also the fact that it has to be hot outside. This does really? not. You do really? not get ice cream headaches in the winter. Oh my god! I didn't realize <laughs> they have that. never been able to to induce an ice cream headache in the winter in the lab. There has to be a heat differential. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's really sure how ice cream headaches work, for sure. Yeah. But they think that it has to do with basically with vasoconstriction. So with your blood vessels first dilating and then constricting. My favorite review of this. Concluded. This was by Joseph Houlihan, a neurologist at Temple University, and he concluded that ice cream abstinence is not indicated. <laughs> so, so that to me says it all. My um, my theory was that ice cream headaches were actually caused by the song, the ice mm. cream truck. You know, do 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 do. You hear that too often. But there is something weird in that it's the incidence seems to go up with age. Huh kids who are like six experience it less frequently than kids who are 10, than kids who are 16. So I think there might also be a bit of social contagion. You want to say that you've experienced an ice cream right. headache. Right. Teenage girls. Oh my yeah. God, it's an ice cream headache. Exactly. Oh exactly. my God, beaver's so cute, ice cream headache. It's totally, That's what I know about teenage yes. girls. What I said was totally unscientific. There has been no study on the social contagion of ice cream headaches. But to me, that seems like a plausible explanation. That's good. I like plausible that. Explanation. That doesn't seem like bullshit. All right, last one. Shark attacks. Sharks are coming to get us is a bullshit. Sharks are not coming to get you. You have a much higher rate of dying by basically just about any death that you can come up with right now yeah. than of getting attacked by a shark. What if you are a bluefin tuna? The statistics for 2015 aren't in yet, yeah. but I think that this is a particularly bad year for bluefin tuna. <laughs> Maria Konnikova is the author of Mastermind and is also the author of The Confidence Game. She rode herd over our summer fest, our outdoor Coachella festival of Is That Bullshit. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you so much, Mike. Think about time, think about money, think about hassle. I know you don't want to think about it, but just think about it. Think about how bad these things are. And think about when you're doing time, money, and hassle, not waiting in line for a roller coaster where there's a delightful roller coaster at the end, but a business meeting. So when you layer time, money, and hassle upon the downside of a business meeting, it just ruins your whole day, literally. Therefore, I give you Citrix GoToMeeting. It is the smarter way to meet. GoToMeeting makes it easy to meet with your team whenever you need to, wherever, because with GoToMeeting, you can meet from any computer, tablet, or smartphone. You can join by clicking a link, right? No signups, no speed bumps. Boom, you turn on your webcam, HD quality, like being in the room. You can share screens to present, review, and get feedback in real time. Because with GoToMeeting, everyone sees what you're seeing, so your team can get on the same page and get going. Hey, why not sign up for GoToMeeting today, risk-free, for 30 days, you got nothing to lose. You go to GoToMeeting, which is GoToMeeting.com, click on the Try It Free button. If you do it now, you can have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for a free 30-day trial. And now the spiel, wherever. 
I do not apologize for Trumpinating for falling into the Trump trap. I come not to pump up Trump. Although, is that even possible? He seems to be a human being without a maximum PSI level. Now, if that PSI is political scientist incredulity, Trump has exceeded it. For weeks, we have been told his end is nigh. He can't sustain this. Some comment or another will catch up to him. And I think it will eventually. But as any savvy investor knows, even if you think a stock will eventually fall, if you're not wrong with that prediction, but merely too early with that prediction, you can lose your shorts. So the latest is that Trump may have gone too far when he retweeted an insult at Fox host Megyn Kelly bimbo. And then he said, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, blood coming out of her wherever. This might have been the final aspersion, we're being told. An advisor quit or was fired or was resigned fired. This is Trump world. Trump was disinvited to the red state conference. And you know that old political joke about a can't lose candidate where the only thing that'll stop him is being caught with a dead girl, a live boy, or being disinvited from the Red State Conference. Also, Fox has turned against him. See, the thinking here goes that Rupert Murdoch, though he never liked Trump, he did ride him to a ratings bonanza. Now that the debate's over, it could cut him loose. So in light of all of this going on, Trump took to the airwaves, well, all the airwaves except Fox, to defend and explain his comments. He used this line of logic everywhere. This one was to Chuck Todd on Meet the Press. I wake up and I, I hear that, uh, that you know, somebody took it as something else. Only a deviant would think that, Chuck. I, wouldn't, I didn't even think that. I, who would think it? Hey, I went to the Wharton School of Finance, the toughest place to get into. I was a great student. I don't talk that. So why who can't you apologize? The Wharton School of Finance Shield. It works for anything. Uh, sorry, sir, we pulled you over for driving erratically. We did not know you went to the Wharton School of Finance. You know what, right here, let me just pick up this folder of old news. Let me just read some uh, old news item. Here we go. Former Chicago businessman Noah Robinson was convicted Thursday for a second time in five years on racketeering, narcotics, and murder for hire charges. Robinson earned an MBA degree from the University of Pennsylvania's prestigious Wharton School of Business. More recently, 2009, Former Wharton School professor Lawrence Scott Ward, already serving a 15-year prison term for trafficking in child pornography, was sentenced yesterday to 10 years more for smuggling still photos and video of himself having sex with a 16-year-old Brazilian boy. So there I think I have demonstrated that which does not need to be demonstrated to a normal person, that going to a certain school, the Wharton School, say, doesn't inoculate you from being a retrograde, forehead-smacking, insensitive Neanderthal. Oh, here's another famous example, Donald Trump. But it doesn't matter. It's beside the point. I do not think this will be the incident that brings Trump down. For weeks, the mainstream media has been a little delighted, but a little dismissive of the Trump ascendancy. When he insulted Mexicans, some thought it would sting. It didn't. When he insulted veterans, some thought that was the death knell. In fact, it was something of a reveille. Now, he's insulted Megyn Kelly. Sure, Murdoch's world's not going to like it. So what? Trump's bigger than you. And it is a bit ambiguous as to what the wherever was. You understand what I'm saying? He said she was bleeding out of her wherever. 
you know, I don't think you could say beyond a reasonable doubt that he was referring to Megyn Kelly's period. I hate that I'm even in the position to make the case for Donald Trump. I can't even make it well. I didn't even go to the Wharton School of Law. But really, compared to the McCain outburst, where he said, I like people who weren't captured, the Kelly thing seems to pale. The McCain statement was then followed by a totally disprovable claim that McCain did nothing to help veterans. It was really clear what Trump was saying in that case. It was really clear that he was wrong. And it was really clear that veterans in this country, okay, forget this country, veterans in the Republican Party enjoy a more exalted status than, say, women, especially women members of the media. So if Trump's ridiculous insult of a bona fide hero helped him in the polls, I see why Trump's probable ridiculous insult of a woman will be the thing that sinks him in the polls. I do not claim to know much about the Trump ascendancy. Maybe I know three things. One, it will eventually deflate. It's just got to. Two, it is an interesting and real touchstone of what's ailing America, more specifically what's ailing the Republican Party. And three, Megyn Kelly's wherever will not be Trump's monkey business, will not be Trump's mulligan letters, will not be Trump's Willie Horton. Listen to John Dickerson's Whistle Stop from the Panoply Network to understand more. But understand this here and now. Trump momentum not abating. And while we won't reach exit Trump velocity, get ready for more Trump for quite a while. What gives me status to say this? Well, I once went on a visit, a college visit, to the Wharton School of Finance. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi has talent coming out of her ears and her who knows where. Joel Meyer, managing producer, has oodles of competence coming from his Ganectagazoink. Mike Volo edited today's show despite a slightly leaky puppet. You know, wait, not the puppet, the pup I'ma call it. Andy Bowers, our executive producer, slathers lotion all over his torso and more so his wear-so. The gist coming to you from wherever. Chicago, the north side of wherever. Talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.